You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. As you can see, uh, Delia Popescu is associate professor and chair of political science at Le Moyne College in uh, Syracuse. Uh, it is a Jesuit college uh, which is uh, oriented towards social justice. She's also the director of legal studies at Le Moyne College and the director of uh, an institute for global peace. Yeah, I know. I, a, yeah. I, I don't know how she does it all. Punishment, punishment, yeah. So I think she's glad to be here. Very. <laughs> to have a bit of a break from all of those hats. Um, she uh, wrote a wonderful book uh, in 2011 uh, called uh, Political Action in Václav Havel's Thought, The Responsibility of Resistance. So I urge you all to check that out. And I think at least part of what she's going to say here kind of takes off from, from that starting point. Well, thank you very much for your generosity. And this is, this is fine. It's always fun to come to Madison. Uh, my colleagues really envy me, although I have to say this, strangely enough, I came from Syracuse, where, where there were 70 degrees when I oh. left. I know, Syracuse, and you know, that, that was a bizarre thing. And it's cold here, but I still like it. <laughs> it's very nice, and thank you. Thank you, David. That, this, this is great. Um, I think, uh, again, I'm going to depart from the script uh, I, I usually give, which is this power, discussion of power in Havel. Um, my research agenda has moved a little bit. Good news. My research agenda has, has, has advanced. And I place myself now um, in this discussion that is taking place in comparative political theory. Right? Uh, I'm a political theorist by training, and I suppose that that makes for a certain you know, professional orientation that I had to pick up at some point. Uh, and comparative political theory is a relatively new f field of inquiry, or, or rather the structured study of comparative uh, politics is, is uh, of uh, comparative political theory is relatively new. Um, now we're asking questions about how, how to, to look at other traditions of thought, right? And more specifically, how to move away from this idea that we need to fold them into our own tradition of thought, right? That we need to bring them into the conversation, that we need to uh, put them in terms that are understandable uh, to, in a conversation that we already have, right? Um, so that's, I, I'll come back to this idea uh, that really started, in my case, because of a certain unease that I experienced when I saw to what extent Western European political thought had a tendency to fold in, to assume that Eastern European political thought was part of it, and at the same time ignore Eastern European political thought, right? So there was this assumption that there's one thought, and that's European thought, and which meant that, by default, uh, Eastern Europeans were simply not discussed, right? They were both in and out at the same time, right? Um, and this discussion is, uh, it, it was spurred to, to some extent by 1995 Jeffrey Isaac article that you might be familiar with. It was called The Strange Silence of Political Theory. Uh, it made quite the waves at the time. Jeffrey Isaac uh, made this kind of quick and dirty overview of, of journals of political theory and he saw that there was really nothing published no political theory analysis of the 89 revolutions or of Eastern European thinkers, right? And he said, he offered a little bit of a, essentially a defense of Eastern European thinkers. He said, well, look, 
Um, clearly, they have things that are worth uh, considering. You should really look into these things. Maybe they will contribute to the conversation. But what was uncomfortable to me, for lack of a, of a better word, was that he still phrased even this um, charitable defense of including Eastern European political voices exactly in these terms, that they should be included into the already existing constellation of questions and discussions we're having. It was for the purpose of illuminating what we are already doing, right? And, and I suppose this, this is, um, gave me pause because I, I, I thought that it's more than a missed opportunity, right? That looking at Eastern European political thought should be more than just, oh, it's an opportunity we've missed, right? Um, and I'll tell you, you know, I'll, I'll just read to you a couple of things that, uh, if I can see. Uh, so here's what Isaac says. The fact is that the Central Europeans have believed themselves to be and have been part of a cosmopolitan tradition of humanistic values with roots in the European Renaissance and Enlightenment. And then he adds that um, Eastern European writers frequently invoke Western philosophy and are participants in a common European culture that is the intellectual basis of contemporary political theory. Um, in, in a conflation, or, or at least that was my interpretation, that there was a conflation of method and essence there. And he reflects on how Eastern Europeans relate to Western European philosophy. And then he concludes by inviting commenta commentators to take Eastern European uh, philosophy home, as it were, right? And enfold it into this familiar context that, that serves as this shared um, uh, grid of meaning, right? A hermeneutic grid that we need to, to fold into. Um, and most political theorists, and again, you, you could see what happened next, right? Uh, most political theorists who, who dealt with Eastern European political theory found exactly the result of this kind of teleological thinking. I'm looking to see how they fit in Western European um, categories. I'll find Western European categories, right? So, for example, Ralph Derendorf, Timothy Garton Ash, Bruce Ackerman, Peter Rutland all maintained that the literature behind the Eastern European revolutions was an adapted, contemporary rewriting of well-trodden liberal ideas. So people like Havel, Kuron, Michnik, uh, Conrad, registered as very familiar expressions of liberal, or liberal tropes. Johnson and Rao read Lockean liberalism into dissident work, and in fact suggested that there is a uh, social contract <coughs> element to Charter 77 and Solidarity, and they can both be interpreted as this kind of Lockean exercises in the, in the self-conscious creation of alternative social spaces, right? So it was social contract theory, Euro Eastern European style. Um, then Keane, like people like Keane argues that revolutionary dissident thinking and action is a pragmatic exercise in active democratic memory anchored in the Western version of civil society. Um, and in fact, so compelling is the language of liberalism that virtually every other commentator was charged with finding the local flavor, right? whatever particular local flavor they could distinguish. Right? Um, in a logic reminiscent of Kessler's notion of, of Eastern Europe as the laboratory of our time, Johnson points out that Eastern Europe is bringing particular insights to, again, Lockean social contract thinking by showing how civil society might be brought into being in hostile contexts. Um, so there, there starts to be, and, and Jeffrey Isaac uh, agrees with this, I mean, he's the one who makes this point, that there's an interpretive consensus that emerges on behalf of this avowedly liberal interpretation, right, uh, of what happened in 89 and dissident thinking. 
So Holmes calls 89 the liberal revolution. Um, Rutland says that liberal democracy is clearly the only game in town. Ackerman um, says that Eastern European revolutionary thinking represents a return of revolutionary democratic liberalism. Derendorf um, says, squarely argues, that democracy, pluralism, citizenship are not exactly new ideas. These are his words, are not exactly new ideas. And Stokes adds that this was not a revolution of total innovation, but rather a return to an existing model of pluralist democracy. And Gart Nash puts the cherry on this cake, and he says they can offer no fundamentally new ideas on the big questions of politics, economics, law, or international relations. It's a long list of failures there. So again, in this context, Isaac's invitation to, to take Eastern European um, uh, political theory home is, in my mind, fraught uh, with problems, right? And not only because it's, it's predicated on what they think is a contestable notion of this common root, right, of commonality, and because it also displaces the possible, hege what I call the hegemonic implications of this interaction uh, that might have more in common, really, with the dynamic of things like post-colonialism rather than a shared common culture, right? Um, in my mind, mere familiarity with Western thought doesn't reflect necessarily a source of commonality, which still remains to be established, right, through comprehensive study. Um, and there's at, least, there's at least one person who at least marginally agrees with me, um, Sheila Ben-Habib, who responds to Jeffrey Isaac in this set of um, uh, 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 discussions. She says, um, historical memories run deep, contextual knowledge is not easily attained, and we cannot simply wander into these territories without knowledge of their language, history, cultures, and social structures, and extract meanings out of 1989. Right? And Ben Habib also suggests that there's reason to believe that Eastern Europeans might not consider themselves as much part of European culture as either assumed by the observers of 1989 or as projected by the political discourse surrounding these events. In other words, there's a difference between the strategic stance of making these points in, in words that Westerners, in, in concepts that Westerners can understand, and the actual political theory that undergirds these, these concepts, right? Uh, so there's, again, a confliction, a confliction of, of uh, method and essence, right? So in the following comments, I try to motion a little bit in this um, direction of, of encouraging a critique right, of this, this new way to enga uh, engage in political and comparative political theory. And uh, you know, my pet political thinker, I like her very, I like her very much, is Lisa Lowe. Right? And she uh, neatly describes this, this um, kind of endeavor into critiquing this type of uh, impulse. She, she calls it the economy of affirmation and forgetting that structures and formalizes the archives of liberalism and liberal ways of understanding. I know, I actually like that. <laughs> <laughs> right, that you can replace liberal with Western, right? Or rather the archives of the Western imaginary and Western ways of understanding, yeah? Um, so, and I try to do quite a bit. So I, I acknowledge the fact that I might have bitten here more than I could chew. Yeah. So I, I uh, try to bring together at least three strands of, of commentators, three strands of theory. One is um, perhaps expectedly Saidian Orientalism, right? That kind of critique. It's recent applications to Eastern Europe, right? There are a number of um, pretty popular people like Larry Wolf, Maria Todorova. Uh, Bakich Haydn, who talk about how you can look at Eastern Europe and the interpretation of Eastern Europe through Saidian eyes. 
Um, then the other strand of theory that I, I fold in there is um, comparative political theory, more specifically Li Jianko's recent work on Chinese Confucianism. Any Anybody interested in Confucianism at the table? <laughs> She's an unexpected, perhaps an unexpected partner of a conversation, but she, her study of Chinese uh, political thought um, invited her to present a method of how to engage with other bodies of thought without subordinating them to um, the Western political theory. And then, of course, the third strand is Eastern European political thought, especially Havel, right? Um, and, and this is the punchline. I'm trying to, to show that an interpretation of Havel that is loaded with Western categories leads, leads in one direction. An interpretation of Havel that breaks these anchors leads in a different direction, right? And so I'm trying to use Havel as an example, as a case study. Um, so let me get back, and, and again, so, some of this you, you probably already know uh, if you do some work in, in post-colonialism. Uh, so let me go back to some of the questions that this kind of uh, theorizing invites. Yeah? Uh, in what, for example, in what context is the category of Eastern Europe invoked? What's the hermeneutic purpose of that reference? Right? What do we try to convey by invoking it? What is reinforced or undermined by referring to Eastern European thought? Um, and my first observation is that while I, uh, I don't like the East-West separation because it's such a weighty divide, so it sounds so heavy with the Iron Curtain vocabulary, at the same time, I'm not comfortable with conflating the two as well, right? Um, because Eastern Europe is created through exclusion, seems to be like a category created through exclusion, and that has a meaning, right? It seems that that's important. Um, so I, I try to look at um, first the genealogy of the East-West divide, and to see what the importance of it is in, in um, seeing how Eastern Europe was used conceptually as opposed to Western Europe. And then I look into this, I, I take this kind of Kuhnian track of looking at the, some of these habits of mind that we employ, habits of, uh, of mind and inter interpretation that we use in our disciplines, right? Uh, and you know the paths we choose when we do these things. Um, and then, of course, from um, the perspective of comparative political theory, I'm interested in the fallout of these habits of mind and, and interpretation. And I think you see the punchline, it's behind me. That's, that's what happens when we fall into these habits of mind and interpretation, the shadow of the hegemon, right? I, I call this the shadow of the hegemon, and hopefully by the end of the talk it will become um, self-evident. So I'll make the case very briefly for the first two um, the points, right? This idea of the gene genealogy of this divide and how we employ it, and the disciplinary habits that perpetuate this divide, right? Um, and one of the things, th this is not necessarily uh, my contribution to this discussion, right? So I parse together some observations that have been made elsewhere. I give them in my own interpretation. Eastern European thought was, is most frequently invoked in this context of political and economic transformations. In other words, there's a huge body of literature in social science, history, even literature, that capitalizes on a style of thinking that is tributary to the notion of uh, national identity, national development, economic development, path of modernity, that type of thinking, right? Um, it's comparative historical and policy analysis rather than any type of philosophical inquiry. That comes as a secondary thing and afterthought in the discussion. This pervasive interpretive trope um, really originated in this kind of comparative historiographic East-West studies of enlightenment and modernity. In other words, when uh, Western Europeans discovered the, um, anything worth um, it, it, 
analyzing about Eastern Europe, they put it in this, these types of disciplinary boundaries, historiography, economics, international political economy. And there's a long list of people that do this, Halicki, Berend, Ranke, more Berend, he's very popular, uh, Shiro, Shuk, Geremek, Janos. Um, and this, uh, these are a lot, also a lot of Eastern Europeans, as you can tell, people who work in the West, uh, mostly, right? Um, but Todorova, for example, she says that it's, uh, I, I'm gonna use this word again, da David, co-constitutive, right? That this was popular across East and West. It started in the West, this idea that economic development was the first thing to look at, and then layers on top of it. And it trains also, right, Eastern European economists and historians. So um, Todorova remarks that in, in the Eastern European context, more so than in other non-Western contexts, the literature on backwardness is dominated by economic historians and political scientists. In fact, some authors have argued that the subdiscipline of economic development was created in the 1940s, mostly by Eastern Europeans, who employ the cases of Eastern Europe as the original empirical base. The political economy analysis dominating this uh, for the past 60, 70 years sets this, this baseline of what is called a, a theory of a rift between the levels of economic development in Western and, and Eastern Europe. Again, I'm sure that, that right, this is not, this is a fairly familiar uh, trope of analysis, yeah? There, there's this big rift that Eastern Europe is behind, right, that there's a benchmark uh, that it aspires to an economic political benchmark that is set and lagging, right? Eastern Europe is, Eastern Europe is lagging behind that. So you hear things like, um, this rift started as early as the 12th century and began to widen considerably in the 17th century. Um, then, interestingly, what happens next is that once this narrative is constructed, then some scholars go back even further and they trace a major bifurcation back to antiquity. Right? to the supposed imprint of the Roman Empire and a political economic ev uh, evolution that sidetracked the region. Right? This is Gellner. The familiar notion of a second feudalism. Right? So they start to crochet the past to fit this kind of path of, of lag from the Romans. Um, right? this, this, this idea of the second feudalism, and again, this uh, Wallerstein talks about it. Right? So um, people establish in these, these IPE, international political economy studies. Um, a host of theories define modernity through this economic expression. And it is in this context of this socioeconomic diffusion that Eastern Europe is constructed as the first um, and closest periphery to the core of modernity. These are Todorova's words, right? Um, as Todorova remarks, the impetus of modernity studies is to unpack the process by which the non-modern and the non-Western becomes modern and hence Western. Um, on the basis of these economic theories of dispersion, Enlightenment scholarship, by its very method of inquiry, assumed that any other expressions of Enlightenment were shaped by, and I quote, those who listened to the call of the times and were mere recipients of the normal European path. Um, a continuation of this trend has um, recent expression in transition studies um, and hun even Huntington's idea of this third wave of democratizations. Uh, which professed this neutral social science system of analysis that included politics, economics, society, and culture with a view to bringing Eastern Europe up to speed to Western democracy. Um, transitional studies waned um, precisely because of this kind of teleological uh, ethos that was heavily criticized, right? That it really created an end point and Eastern Europe was supposed to fit. <clears throat> 
the 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 parallel story here, and this is why this is such a it's a thick right description, is that while this was happening in history and economics, right, um, cultural studies followed suit, right. So there was a tendency to also follow the same type of cultural analysis, right, into into this, this economic discussion that. Oh, look at Romania. There were no writings until I don't know what time. And they were so inferior. Nothing happened. It was a disaster. Everything was so late, right? And so you always, and there was a very loaded kind of judgment that this lateness imprinted a, an inferior quality and necessarily, right, required mimicry, right? That whatever is late then has to start by a benchmark that is set elsewhere and hence catch up, right? Um, and uh, Bukowski, Michal Bukowski argues that part and parcel of applying this layered logic of development to Eastern Europe is a persistent and homogenizing orientalizing frame. Uh, Bukowski contributes to this discussion sparked by this relatively recent application of Said to uh, this idea of orientalism to Eastern Europe. Larry Wolf, um, his book Inventing Eastern Europe maps out this imagology surrounding what Churchill called these Eastern states of Europe and points out that the East-West distinction was not a natural one, um, that it was really a work of cultural creation of intellectual artifice, of ideological self-interest, these are all Larry Wolf's words, yeah? uh, ideological self-interest and self-promotion. Wolf concludes that it was Western Europe that invented Eastern Europe as its complementary other half in the 18th century, the Age of Enlightenment. Whereas otherness was previously relegated to the northern European territory, right? So in other words, this geography shifted. It used to be the northern Europe um, that compared itself to the south. Enlightenment discourse shifted Western Europe other to the east. The Enlightenment, Wolf continues, had to invent Western Europe and Eastern Europe together as complementary concepts, defining each other by opposition and adjacency. Um, and Wolf, you know, he's also snide about this. He describes this Western philosophic geography as the free-spirited sport of cultural and political elites, right? So they were quite careless about this too, I know. It's sort of the free-spirited sport of political elites in, in, engaged in an intellectual project of demi-orientalization. And it's interesting that he calls it demi-orientalization because there are um, a couple of other very interesting commentaries that show how problematic it is to, for Eastern Europe to be both close to Western Europe and yet out of Europe, right? So this kind of liminality becomes an identity, an orientalizing identity in itself that is different than the orientalist frame of the Far East, let's say, right? Um, Todorova uses travelogues, pol political and historical writings to show that in the Western perception, the Balkans, for example, appeared fundamentally ambiguous, neither fish nor fowl, these are her words. Unlike Orientalism, which is dis a discourse about imputed opposition, Todorova explains, Balkanism is a discourse about an imputed ambiguity, neither Oriental nor European. Both Wolf and Todorova agree that Balkanism is a rhetorical construction, right? a project, not a place, as Bakic Haydn says. Um, and Wolf calls this a paradox of simultaneous inclusion and exclusion, Europe but not Europe, a kind of in-between space of mediation and the consequent offspring of this, this intellectual project. As opposed to the opulently depicted Far East, the Balkans, um, uh, Todorova says, with their unimaginative concreteness and almost total lack of wealth, induced a straightforward attitude, usually negative, but rarely nuanced. Right? So she, she's trying to capture this, this construction. 
So this, this core periphery logic really reinforces that the notion that only one set of original answers is valid while the belated rests are superficial and derivative, right? And that's, that's the, the path that you see in studies of Eastern Europe. Implicitly, the Western-centric version requires Eastern Europe to build the sociopolitical conditions existent in the West in order to rise to the possibility of providing the same answers. Um, this obfuscates the varied results of the interaction between local, social, political, and cultural conditions with the broader questions of the age. In other words, if sociopolitical cur currents like the Enlightenment can be identified by the questions it posed, we can also allow for, for the possibility that the various answers were shaped by rooted experience, uh, experiences that are not monolithically Eastern, but very broadly across time and space. Um, this rootedness does not invalidate the possibility of similarities, but it does belie the notion that these local experiences were aspiring somehow to an ideal model rather than answering everyday life conditions of their own. Um, only recently has it become uh, conceivable to talk of multiple enlightenments, right? Kuntler does this, who argues that, at least to suggest, that whereas the enlightenment was a movement more or less unified by the question it asked, the answers varied widely along cultural ge uh, geographical as, long as, as well as ideological frontiers. And they all had a legitimate claim to be regarded as enlightened. Right? So what does this have to do with political theory? So let's assume I persuaded you that this is happening in area studies everywhere and this is somehow, yeah, um, uh, it, it's pole vaulted into all sorts of other um, uh, academic fields of study like literature, cultural studies. <laughs> Um, there is a great degree of authority, right, that, that's attributed to Western voices. So contributions are judged in the structural context of this delayed modernity, right? So uh, let me give you some examples. For example, works of reference like uh, Oxford, the Oxford and Princeton readers in political thought include no Eastern European thinkers whatsoever. Yeah, these are just relatively new uh, collections, right? Only Russian. The Cambridge History of Political Thought dedicates only one uh, entry to an Eastern European thinker, and it's Georgi Lukash, uh, who's oddly placed under the label Western Marxism. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting in itself. The eight-volume Encyclopedia of Political Thought references only eight thinkers from the region, right? I guess one per volume. Um, it's like, uh, if you, if you even look beyond these, some of these collections of political theory and you look at collections, right, of, of essays or, or commentary, um, there are other inclusions, right? People like Risteva, like Zvetan Todorov, Mircea Eliade, Emil Choran, um, Ionescu Kundera, Miloš. But, you know, there are also critics of this approach, right? People like Kostika Brodetan, for example, who's a Romanian political scientist, argues that even the inclusion of these names, right, Todorova, Kristeva, Ionescu, Kuchoran, uh, betrays an exclusion. These are Eastern European transplants who contributed to the Western cultural trends. And these are, and I quote, no significant attention is paid to their complex background, to the specificity of their cultural origin, to the unique blend of intellectual concerns. Um, all these things that resulted in, in their own individual profiles and made them who they are. Bradetan argues that, in a sense, it is a, as though these people came from nowhere, the offspring of the Eastern European nothingness that they are. He, I mean, he's pretty harsh about this, but he's trying to make a point, right? What is more, um, the voices of these adopted children might even, um, right, he calls them the adopted children, may contribute to even orientalizing more the frame that, that we're discussing, right? Uh, for example, Czeslav Milos. 
spoke of a feeling that Eastern Europeans are, um, and I quote, burdened with a longing for a homeland other than the one, uh, uh, than the one assigned to them from birth. Right? This is Miloš. Joran famously called Romania le neant valac, right? the Valachian nothingness. Uh, yeah, this is where I'm from, apparently, this one. And Eliade and Kundera, uh, they depict tragic people caught between invaders and great powers. They have never been entirely integrated into the consciousness of Europe, have been hidden even further by the curtain of their strange and scarcely accessible languages. Right? So this, um, again, to the point that these contribute to a certain um, uh, orientalizing and distancing of these frames. Uh, there are some exceptions to this, so I'm not trying to make, I don't try to, to I, I'm not trying to be too totalitarian in this description. I'm just trying to point that there is a trend that can be uh, identified, right? The exceptions are few and far between, though. Um, there's a community of scholars uh, led by Balash Trenteni, who is a Hungarian historian. They put together a number of volumes that collects writings from Eastern Europe. They still are very much uh, the temptation. They they succumb to this temptation of uh, talking about the building of national identity. And as a political scientist, I should be really jazzed about that. But I'm not because I think it it it's limiting in itself, right? If your idea is to see how the project of nationalism is buttressed by the writings, by the thought of that region, you're already choosing a path. You're already making a value judgment that 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 defines your method. Um, so, so there are a few contributions there. There, One I think is just coming out this year um, of, of volumes that deal with political thinking, right? With Eastern European political thinking. Um, and, and now to to come to Havel, I'm, I'm, if you want to, let me put it this way, I know I couldn't possibly do justice to all these arguments here. I write about them quite a bit, and other people write about them quite a bit, so if you want, if you're more interested in this, I'd be happy to send you more about this. Um, I also made, I suppose, the mistake of contributing to, uh, uh, I think it's uh, the Oxford Reader in Comparative Political Theory, and my chapter is by region, my chapter is Eastern Europe, right, so the entire, the entire region. <laughs> so I'm, 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 you know, buying a helmet and a shield and armor to protect myself from the critiques that will come pouring, and because I have such a such a radical, you know, uh, you're doing injustice to Eastern political thought, kind of, um, and I criticize quite quite a few people who will not be happy about this. Um, so, so, but but I'm doing it with kindness, right, and and hopefully with awareness. <laughs> Uh, with awareness of the fact that I want things to change and to go somewhere else, yeah, um, and mostly because of my, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't want to call it my love of Havel because that makes me by default biased, but my preoccupation with <laughs> Havel's work, right? I want to redeem so certain types of um, interpretations of Havel, who I think are misle they're misleading and they're misled by the very patterns of thinking that they have embraced. Um, so the writing of Václav Havel, the Czech playwright, dissident, eventual president of the Czech Republic, have generated an almost a hilarious um, uh, group of, and, you know, David Danaher knows this, right? That if you read the interpretations of Havel, you wonder how come a group of people can disagree so much on one person? How, did they read the same thing or not, right? Um, and um, Avi Tucker, who wrote a, a book about the philosophy of dissidence from Patoshka to um, Havel, even takes the time to document, right? He's being snide about this, but he's documenting this little disagreement. And he says, 
Keen and Matushtik disagree with Pavlik and Smith, who disagree with Radha Krishan, who disagrees with Bethia Elstein. Uh, Rorty's Bayard and Hammer's postmodernist interpretation are at odds with the personalist and universalist interpretation of Rollins, Anderson, and Kuczynski, and with Hunt's interpretation of Havel as overcoming postmodernist dilemmas. Right? Generally, uh, the, the, as, as Avi Tucker is pointing out, everybody is at pains to find a label for Havel, one that we can recognize, one that we know how to interpret, right? So everybody's trying to, to, to place him somewhere. Um, the analysis then, because of this, because of this, this, this temptation of finding labels, the analysis become very self-contained, right? So they become very solipsistic somehow. They keep talking about how does Havel fit into this and for what reason, and they don't get out of that. They don't engage very much with other, um, with other things or even with other texts in Havel. Um, so these, these debates about the extent to which Havel fits or does not fit recognizable models um, seems to be the order of the day. Carolyn Bayard and Richard Rorty see a postmodern Havel with elements of Lyotard. I mean, that's quite postmodern, yeah. Um, despite Havel's insistence on the higher ground of moral responsibility, right? It's a pretty tough sell to read Lyotard into somebody who talks about the higher ground of moral responsibility. Patrick Lawler and Edward Erickson take almost the opposite approach, focus on this importance of the higher ground. Higher ground is, is Havel's phrase. And they interpret Havel's work as pre-modern and pseudo-religious. Right? So we go from Lyotard to religious fundamentalist. Erickson insists that religion is the unspoken anchor in Havel's writing, even though Havel spends quite some time explicitly rejecting, um, right? he doesn't, he doesn't, he says clearly that he's not a religious person or not in the way that people expect, and he talks about the ideological mythology of religion, and the idea, he refuses this idea of an external arbiter of conscience, which seems to take God out of the equation, or in any case, makes it problematic. Um, and, and very few, this is the, the punchline, right? Very few commentators resist this temptation of, of putting Havel in his theoretical place, right? Um, and I think, and this is when I'm gonna come to your own David Danaher's um, interpretation that is very much in line with mine as we discovered perhaps serendipitously at the conference, right? We realized that we were you know, kindred spirits in the way we looked at Havel. What most of these interpretations have in common is the fact that they're very selective when it comes to Havel's work, right? They deal either with just with essays or they just look at political speeches or they just look at plays. None of them do this holistic job of, of, of interpretation that integrates all of them. Uh, and it's, of course, this is partly prompted by the fact that it's very, uh, Havel's work is so diverse, right, that you think, oh, well, I don't need to read the plays, right? That's something else. But in Havel's case, that's simply not true, right? So you have to read every time he wrote Dadaistic type of poetry, he wrote plays, and you have to figure out how these things come together because as it happens, and Havel explicitly tells us over and over, they're all pieces of the argument, right? So, uh, you know, again, Havel says that, and yet we have a bunch of commentaries that keep taking pieces out of Havel and interpreting them in these very narrow ways. So, uh, you know, David Danaher, and I love the way he, he phrases this. I don't, I, I have other words for it, but I think yours are better. Um, you're talking about tessellation and, and the mosaic of his styles, right? That in exactly like a mosaic, the tiles by themselves don't amount too much. Once you put them together, you get the full image, right? So da David Danaher identifies, a, I'm gonna speak in your name now, a collage of nine genres that make up Havel's work, art and literary criticism, visual poetry, plays, essays, letters, 
collaborative autobiography, political statements, presidential speeches, and political memoirs, right? You could see why anybody would have, you know, uh, kind of fatigue of reading all these types of writings, right? But unfortunately, you have to, right? Um, trained as a playwright, uh, right, initially, Havel started to write political essays. Later, he delivered presidential speeches. Um, and in, the, in my interpretation, and again, these texts are not meant to stand on their own. And, and again, Havel says that. Um, they were rather part of this coherent and broad political philosophy that found literary, it found literary incarnation in the plays, political appeals in his essays, pol policy articulations in his presidential speeches, right? So Havel consistently tackled the same themes throughout his work. Yeah. Um, the greengrocer of the power of the powerless is the character Vanek in the plays. He is himself in letters to Olga and summer meditations, right? They're all facets of the same um, uh, political philosophical construction that he calls living in truth and that he tries to evocatively get across to us through all these genres, right? Um, of course, the trouble is that Havel never presents us with this kind of magnus opus, yeah? And that is something that we are trained to look for, right? And we do not find this in Havel. Surely, if you piece together everything he's writing, it is possible to find the magnus opus. But it's clearly not the classical form that that would usually take, right? A clear book, a clear ars poetica, right? So um, because of this, many of his interpreters also call, also question his style, right? They said, well, his essays are really not that philosophically sound. He's not Heideggerian enough, or he's not Hegelian enough, right? But again, the flow of this type of argument is not only that it misses an important dimension of the way in which Havel wants to transmit these ideas, it also misses the context in which these, these assertions are made, right? This tessellation, this mosaic, uh, of, of possibilities. So as, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and I don't know, um, this is consistent with Havel's uh, way of looking at things through Patochka, right? Patochka was a phenomenologist, so he thought that the way in which we experience life every day, right, uh, was important, was important to the way we create knowledge. So Havel uses these forms of conveying knowledge as forms of conveying meaning as well, right? So he, I call it existential, without meaning existentialism in the traditional sense. I just mean the fact that he's trying to project a certain feeling, a certain lived experience through these different types of, of right, means, through these tools, plays, essays, poetry, right? And I think it has a lot to do with the way in which he relates to this idea of everydayness, which is crucial in Patochka and um, really in, in Karel Kosik as well, as well, a, a Czech um, philosopher. So there are at least two other Czechs whose ideas are in line with Havel. And if you look back at Patochka, and I will try to spare you that, or to go look back to, to Kosik, you see that this, this necessarily this idea of everydayness, right, has a, is reflected in Havel's thinking but also in the way in which Havel approaches things, the way he does things, right? Including the way in which he con conveys message, messages, right? Uh, and by the way, and this is, again, this is the interesting thing about Havel. He's also, he's doing this. He's trying to convey a message through different types of tools, through, through different types of, of uh, forms of expression. Also because this, this, is, this is the way in which he thinks of power, 
right? He thinks that power is expressed through, uh, in various ways, right? That, that theater, that the way in which we um, enact things, right, is a way of expressing ourselves and thereby project power, right? So, and, and again, this is, if you read The Power of the Powerless, his, his um, seminal essay, he points at that, right, in some places quite explicitly, right? Um, so this idea that, that power has a place in this is, is important. And, and of course, it's important because he's thinking of the way, uh, of the way in which he lives, right? So his everyday life is post-totalitarian Czechoslovakia, right? He calls it post-totalitarianism precisely because he thinks that force and power, it looks very, very differently than it used to look in dictatorship or right, classical totalitarianism. He thinks that power is really in words, in the, this feedback mechanism, the way, between the way in which we think, uh, we talk, we act, right, and that creates the environment of power. Um, as, as probably you know, many of you know, he, he represents this, this this virtue of of what he calls the automatism, the self-propelling action of power through this this idea of the greengrocer, right? The greengrocer who takes the sign workers of the world unite, puts it between his um, vegetables, right, and he does it, he does it because everybody else does it, right. And he doesn't think very much about it. He doesn't care that whether or not he really agrees with Marxism, right? He does it for at least two reasons. One is that everybody else around him does the same thing. And secondly, because he's afraid that if he doesn't do it, his family, he and his family will suffer, right? So there's fear, or what Havel calls existential pressure, right? Um, and, and then there's the fact that everybody else does it, right? They also add to this existential um, pressure. But fear is not the only thing that Havel talks about, right? He also talks about consumerism. And by the way, the, the reason why I'm walking you down this path of what Havel has to say um, is because there are clear guideposts that there, there, he clearly, Havel clearly signals the fact that he offers fundamental critiques of liberalism, right? So when he talks about fear, when he talks about the power of speech and narrative in the way in which we constitute power, when he talks about what he calls a hypnotic charm of consumerism, right, as a tool of control, he is quite obviously, and in many places explicitly, offering a critique of liberal democracy, right? So it's very, again, it's very difficult for me to see how, in what way, you can take Havel and put, interpret him on, on such a path of uh, reinforcing Western liberalism when the man clearly says that he doesn't want to do it, right? I, he, he says this in Power of the Powerless. He says, uh, my critique is really one of power generally. Modernity, right, is the same, is a set of conditions. And out of this, this set of conditions, you get two things, post-totalitarianism and liberal democracy. Sure, they seem to look qualitatively different, but one thing unites them, the conditions of modernity. And that is relevant, right? That leads us somewhere to a critique of both, right? So when he talks about the hypnotic charm of, of consumerism, the environment of power, he does mean this discourse to cross a, right, political systems. He is not just talking to uh, people in Czechoslovakia, right? And, uh, right, the... Um, you know, again, just as a matter of interest, because I think that this is the, the part that's beautiful about Havel, um, when he talks, when he uh, 
the part of the Parlos was written for uh, Patochka, right? So it was dedicated to Patochka. And what's interesting about that is that Patochka thought that Karol Kosik was a the voice of Czech philosophy, right? Um, and as I said earlier, Karol Kosik's idea of, of everydayness becomes a fundamental strand in Patochka, and then it, ten- it becomes <coughs> living in truth in Havel, right? The idea of living in truth. So there's this genealogy of ideas between um, Kosik and Patochka and, and Havel. Um, and let me tell you a little bit about everydayness, right? Kosik, for example, thinks that there's a clash between everydayness and history. In other words, there's the se- what seems to be an interpretation of, of history as something that has a, a goal, a principle, something that we move toward, something that is bigger than ourselves. And then there's everydayness, right? The way in which we experience life in the everyday, what we do, how we relate to each other and to ourselves, right? In modern times, however, and this is Kosik and to some extent Patochka as well, everydayness ends up becoming this all-encompassing um, right, amoeba that colonizes life. Right? Uh, these are um, Kosik's words. In the everyday activity and way of life are transformed into an instinctive, subconscious, and unreflected mechanism of acting and living. Um, and Kosik is fully aware that this also ca- uh, uh, characterizes capitalist societies. Right. Um, so this phenomenon that certainly characterizes capitalist societies are also, of course, is also found in post-totalitarianism and, and bureaucracy. Divorced from history, Kosick says, the everyday becomes emptied to the point of being absurdly immutable. Divorced from the everyday, history turns into an absurdly powerless giant which bursts into the everyday as a catastrophe, but which nevertheless cannot change it, cannot, cannot eliminate its banality or fill it with content. This sounds complicated, and it is, but thankfully we have Patochka to make some sense of this, right? In heretical essays, um, Patochka touches exactly on the same point, and he argues that the only way to understand um, whether or not history has some meaning that is out there, bigger than ourselves, is to, to, to figure out whether or not human beings are willing to live up to, to own up to history. These are his words, right? He says, are we willing to own up to history? Instead of what? Instead of passively <coughs> going along right, with it um, as, as if it's something that we cannot simply, uh, uh, we cannot be responsible for and we cannot affect. So heretical in heretical essays means precisely this opposition that Patochka has to the idea that we should play along, that we should, that we should play into <coughs> constructing history together. Right? He thinks that that's what Marxism does. Right? It proposes a version of common construction that we can all work towards um, together. For Kosik and Patochka, this is very problematic because that, that uh, the way Patochka phrases it that is that this essentially projects the um, uh, fulfillment of human beings outside of human beings. Right? That there's something else that we're all working toward. It's that whatever the purpose of history is, so that's outside ourselves. So Patochka says, no, 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 no. Actually, it's exactly the reverse of what Marxism is saying. We should come back to everydayness and constantly pull back from this larger scope that, that is proposed to us and try to ground ourselves in the present in empathy, right? In, in empathy and understanding for other human beings. So uh, when he talks about heresy, he's talking about 
the impulse of going against history, right? That's heresy for, for Patochka. And in fact, he calls it something else. He also talks about living in amplitude, right? That's trying to constantly negotiate between yourself, your position in the world today, and what might be a broader meaning of history, right? Again, this living in amplitude sounds a whole lot like living in truth, right? Or rather, you could see how living in amplitude becomes living in truth in, in Havel. Um, and what they have in clearly in common is discomfort, right? Discomfort with, with the way in which we position ourselves in today and in the, in the right now, right? We must let, let ourselves grow to be more uncomfortable and um, by, by the way, Patushka has a beautiful expression of calling this. He calls it the solidarity of the shaken, which I think you know um, Aspen Brint talks about, right? So Patushka says, look, if you are aware of every day, the everydayness, if you are aware of the fact that your job in the everyday is to do two things: resist getting lost in the everyday, but at the same time resist belonging part of something outside yourself that runs uh, you know, for a purpose larger than yourself, right? Then this shakedness, the fact that you should always be uncomfortable with your position, creates a solidarity of people who are aware of the fact that the best position of the human being is this, this constant uncomfortable awareness, right? It's the solidarity of those uncomfortably aware, right? Um, so, and again, um, Havel took Patochka's uh, invitation to think of the uncomfortably aware, and he called it living in truth, and he realized that there's a price to pay if you do that, right? Um, and he calls, and, and of course, Havel also grounds this idea a lot more. He's telling you exactly what he means by this, right? He tells you how to be uncomfortable. Um, and he says, living in truth is any means by which a person or group revolts against manipulation, from a letter by intellectuals to a worker's strike, from a rock concert to a student demonstration, from refusing to vote on the far in the farcical elections to making an open speech at some official congress, or even a hunger strike, or for that matter, any free expression of life. Right? So the aim of living in truth is to resist this homogenizing pr project of totalitarian power and infuse back the plurality of the expressions of life. Right? Uh, and, and in this um, sense, I'm trying to persuade you very hard here that there's a lineage of thought that you cannot understand unless you really understand Patochka and Kosik, and I'm going to throw in Mazarik as well, right? Uh, there, uh, Thomas uh, Garig Mazarik was the first democratic president of Czechoslovakia, right? At least um, that's the way he is described, and he was also a figure that Havel was really... Um, uh, he admired him a lot. And uh, Masaryk talked a lot about brotherhood, right? This idea that really the political should be a type of, of brotherhood. And, and interestingly enough, you wouldn't expect this from, from somebody who is at the top of political leadership, he talked about loving your, your neighbor, right? So the love of thy neighbor and brotherhood were his political principles. Right? So again, you, can, you see how these um, care for the soul concepts, as Patochka would say, become the recipe for resistance in, in Havel. And there's a way of understanding them in this grounded, rooted way in the Czech tradition. Right? <coughs> I forgot my water on the other edge, but I'll leave it without it. So, um, how, how to read, I'll skip a little bit more of my, of my um, commentary here, just because I think I'll give you a chance to read it. Um, but let me, let me thank you very much. 
But let me tell you the, the, the punchline, how to read across traditions, right? If, if there's something to be said um, about the fact that, um, oh, by the way, there's one thing I shouldn't skip because that's from David Danaher. Another thing you should, yeah, I know, hey, it's from David Danaher, so you'd better like it <laughs> or, and know it. Um, David makes a great point, right? And, and I think Kieran Williams does as well. There's something about the, the going across genres that is particularly Czech. Right, that going integrating genres and, and thinking of going across them, right? This tessellation is particularly Czech. So it's also very difficult to think of um, to understand what Havel is doing without understanding the tendency of merger, right? Of of, of merger of styles of writing. Um, and I'm trying to find here um, also Kieran Williams's point. Kieran Williams talks about living in truth as this solidaristic act. In other words, living in truth is not just about you realizing your shakedness, right? The fact that you have to understand your everydayness and the fact that there might something, be something greater out there. But you also have to um, understand your relationship to others, right? So there's a solid, what I call a solidaristic element here. And Kieran Williams says, well, look, this is what's interesting about Havel. He talks about truth in solidarity as a vouching, right? He calls it truth as a vouching. These are Kieran Williams' words. In other words, truth is only found in this exchange between us in which we serve um, as witnesses to one another. We avouch for the truth we carry, and we avouch for the truth other people carry. And that's the way in which we negotiate reality. Um, and I wrote something about this as well because I thought, you know, again, interestingly, Kieran Williams and I, I wrote similar pieces, but we chose to different vocabularies, right? So I talk about bearing witness, and he talks about truth as a vouching, right? So you see, there's, there's a similarity in this. Um, and, and again, his point uh, of, of genealogy, if you will, here, is that to understand the civic notion of truth, right, this truth as a vouching, you have to look at the legacy of Czech historian of science, Emanuel Radl, and at Czech philosopher and sociologist, um, uh, Josef Ludwig Fischer, and at Czech philologist, poet, and scientific Slavist, uh, Josef Shafarjik. So if you look at the work of these three people, you get how Havel is thinking of truth as a vouching. Um, again, just to talk more about um, uh, genealogy. So again, this is again this is a punchline. How to read across traditions? The Lee Jenko tells us we should think of creating uh, creative theorizing, right? Creative. What is creative theorizing? Creative theorizing is um, the way I understand, and that this is me uh, more than Lee Jenko, is resisting the temptation of both rootedness and un the universalism of Western categories, right? On the one hand, if you constantly think that the context of a concept define, it defines its meaning, then clearly that concept can only be applied in that context, right? Or rather, you limit it very much that way, right? Um, by the same token, if you start the discussion from pre-existing, and in this case, Western categories, you again have led the conceptual discussion in a certain direction. So the, the, you know, the dialectical medium here would be to consider the fact that rootedness is transformative. In other words, whatever universal concepts that may seep from the West into Eastern European thinking, 
are transformed by the experience of the place, by the interpretation of the place. And they become new categories that can themselves be universal. And to allow that new universality to speak is the job of, I think, of comparative political theory, right? That really, comparative political theory is more of a tree. It should allow at every nodule a different discussion to emerge based on, on, on a new type of theorizing that is transformative because of the rootedness, right? Because it comes from a different context, right? And, and I know, you know, it's, again, it's um, the point that, that both Lijenko and I are trying to resist is this entire discussion that now in comparative political, and believe me, it's, it's you know, it's uh, a really heavy discussion. We disagree with each other. It's close to punches, yeah? Um, there are people who think, no, 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 you should read, like you read Plato, you don't know much about Greece. You just read Plato and you take these universal categories and run with it. Other people say, no, 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 you couldn't possibly do Chinese political thought without knowing China and Chinese, right? So there, there's a very heavy discussion about how to do this without limiting our tools. Um, and, and then there are people who say, well, we could provincialize Western Europe. What does that mean? Take universal, take these categories that we have and see what they mean in Eastern European context, right? I've, I've just provincialized a universal category that comes from the West, right? And uh, right, so there's this entire discussion about how to do this, right? And I, I, again, I think I come on the Jenko side, although I'm not sure that hers is the minority side or not, and I add my own spin. I think that there's something to be said about taking a step, right, back from being too rooted, but at the same time, there's a certain degree of rootedness that is necessary. And not only necessary, it's necessary for creating new meaning. It's necessary for understanding the creation of new meaning, right? I'll, I'll, I'll stop here, it's, it's five o'clock. It's late for every, everybody's hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so please ask me questions. <laughs>